Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hi, Shabazz, and welcome to the Tej Talks Property Podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. Um, I saw your nice little office earlier. So yeah, thanks so much for your time. And I'm I'm really looking forward to sharing your story with others because I think you've had quite a, an entrepreneurial spirit in you since you were a child. Am I right? Yeah, so I've been, I've been buying and selling since I was 16 years old, pretty much. Um, a lot of different things. I mean, where do you want me to start from? <laughs> so like, what was, let's start at the age of, let's say 18, when, 18, you, be, when okay. you become sort of an adult legally. Adult. I'm still not an adult, so I don't know if that counts really. Yeah, but, um, join the club, man. So, <laughs> like, what? So, what was your sort of story pre-property? Yeah. What were you doing with your life? Um, so, I pretty much started selling stuff when I was in school. You know, um, I was selling MP3 players and mobile phones when people didn't know about eBay. I used to buy stuff off eBay and sell it to them in school, make a margin on it, and I used to flip things onto bargain pages at the time, which is now like Gumtree basically. Um, and then I moved on to, to eBay selling. So, I used to find deals in shops go and buy things in bulk on a credit card and then try and sell them on eBay. If they didn't sell, I'd return them on the credit card within 30 days. If they did sell, I'd make the profit and keep it. Um, wow. So I, I did that for a little bit whilst I didn't have any money when I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, and then I scaled up the eBay thing. I mean, I've sold lots of different things on eBay. I can't even remember half the things that I sold. One thing that sticks out is I had this screensaver for a television, which was basically like um, a fireplace and a fish tank and like various different things. Literally, it was just a video that you put on your TV, and I was selling them for about seven quid a pop, and I sold thousands and thousands of these things when I was like 20 years old, and um, <laughs> wow. they did really well, but then people started copying them, there was no copyrights, I did buy the rights, but people were just uh, infringing on it, so that kind of stopped, and then I went on to selling event tickets, so um, online ticket touting, if you want to call it that, um, I never had to sell outside an arena except for once, and that was in Germany, so... I had tickets to David Hay versus, I think it was Klitschko, Klitschko, David Hay, um, and I had to go to Germany, so I drove, drove all the way down, I had about 5,000 euros worth of tickets in my pocket, and at that time, you know, that's a, that was a lot of money for me, and I was like, oh my God, it's a week before the event, I haven't sold any of these, so I couldn't sell them online, I literally drove there, didn't speak a word of German, I got some t-shirts made up with some German writing on them saying, tickets available, come and speak to me, and I literally stood in the street for a week and sold these tickets off. And it was absolutely crazy, and that's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. But anyway, so then I did. Wow! <laughs> then hustling I, from day one. Yeah, you got to. It's a. It's very. I mean, I haven't done one particular strategy. I've always done various different things, and and then I went on to um, what did I do next? So I started work at Deloitte, corporate finance, so one of the big four. I got a job which I guess a lot of people would you know really love to be in that position because I mean there must have been over 150 people who applied for for my position. I got it, got my ACA, got qualified. Um, whilst I was doing that part-time for one year, I did wedding photography, so I learned all about that. Decided it was too much hard work and like brides are just all bridezillas and like you've got to wake up at eight o'clock in the morning, be there first thing, and then you've got to leave at like one o'clock in the morning at night and then four or five days editing. It's just, for me, it was just time for money and I thought, you know what, let's, let's stop that. So I finished that and then I bought and sold a few cars and then I bought a few buy-to-let properties which I've now sold. Um, and then I guess I left work and I pretty much within a month of leaving work, I'd opened a gym. So Ooh. I've got a gym in Tamworth 
and that's been up and running about two and a half years. Uh, and then I guess simultaneous to that, I did a land deal where I sold a development site to McCarthy and Stone, the national um, retirement home developers, uh, and they put 41 flats on it. So I sold it to them twice because <laughs> I... Um, I sold them a plot for 27 units. Did something very naughty, didn't you? I did something very naughty, yeah. <laughs> and um, I got one up on a big corporation, which always makes me very happy. But I put Good. a ransom strip around it. And then I did a deal with the neighbour on the other side. And then I sold the ransom strip off as well. And then we did a deal for all 41 units. Um, and then off the back of that, I've now, we're now sat in our development site, which is a block of, I started off as a block of 14 flats in Edgebaston. Um, and now we've extended into the basement and we've got an extra four flats. And I've done a, a show home up as one of the new flats and we've sold everything else in the building off plan uh, to the buyer specification so they can choose their bathrooms, kitchen, flooring, all that kind of thing. And it's gone down really well with the buyers because there's nowhere else that you can buy a fully customised apartment that's ready within 10 weeks. Um, and we sold pretty much all of them within about six weeks of launch. Um, and we're wow. now up to today's date. We're probably about a week off exchanging. So we've taken reservation deposits on all of those. We're about a week on exchanging from our first batch for phase one uh, and the refurbs on those are going to kick off um, within the next month and will be exited touch wood by the end of october so that's just a bit of an overview i've probably wow. forgotten a load of stuff in the <laughs> no so i want to touch on those the land deal and this deal and your buy to lets in more detail yeah, okay but going back to when you first <clears throat> bought those few buy to lets what like what was your discovery into property like where did you sort of see property and think oh this is what I want to do now for the yeah. next X many years. I guess like when you're growing up and you know you see you look at people around you and what they've done and people have been successful and you kind of try and you know you emulate that. If you see something good, you just get you gravitate towards it, don't you? So, I mean, growing up, I, I saw you know my uncles had some properties in in Stoke on Trent and some in Coventry and that kind of thing, and I didn't really understand it at the time, but everybody always talked about it as oh that's a strategy that you need long term to build wealth. And I think the whole environment of when they were growing their portfolios, if you want to call it that, was very different to now. You know, it was all the whole kind of buy, refinance, move on very quickly, that kind of model. So they managed to get a few houses. Um, and then I, I saw that and that kind of triggered the thought of what's next. And I've always kind of been buying and selling things and doing business. So that was always a long-term strategy to put money into property. So um, I think that's what first exposed me to property, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and then I had some cash lying around and I was like, okay, I need to do something with this. So I thought, okay, let's buy a rental property. So I just went along, bought a simple vanilla buy to let, nothing fancy, cost like 96 and a half K. Where was it? Um, it was an ACOX screen in Birmingham. Okay. Um, so this is, yeah, that was the first purchase. And I think I agonized probably massively over the first purchase. Like, is this the right thing to do? Am I doing the right thing? I went to see a hundred properties first and you know, like I run, run all the numbers. I'm like, what if it doesn't rent out? And then you have that moment where you like, you just take the leap of faith. You're like, let's just do this. Because yeah, at the moment, jump. at that moment in time, I put my whole life savings, you know, everything I'd ever earned or had available at that point in time, mm. I put all of that into into that property. So, and then it, it was fine. I rented it out within a couple of days. In fact, I rented it out before um, I was doing a refurb on it. And then whilst the refurb was going on, it, it rented out before we even finished. So wow. we, we laid the car, I think we laid the carpets on the Friday and the tenants were in on the Monday, something wow. like that. So what, what are the figures around that deal? So you bought it for about 96? Yeah, so in, originally it was actually listed for 105. Okay. I offered 90, 95 and they just flat said no. The agent was quite rude and said, uh, yeah, there's no way they'll ever accept that offer. You know, you're wasting my time, that kind of thing. And he calls me back two weeks later saying, <laughs> oh, we've had a deal fall through. 
Um, the deal fell through. He says, "Do you want it for? Do you want it for a hundred? I said, "Nah," and we ended up settling at ninety six and a half. Okay. Um, and we did the deal, so it was a good, a good little discount. Um, yeah, yeah. And what was the refurb cost on that? Um, it wasn't. This is going back a little bit, bit of time now, so it wasn't significant. We did basic stuff like I think flooring, paint. We, okay. I think maximum we would have spent was about a couple of grand, and I did the painting myself. So okay, fair enough. See, I'm not the best painter in the world, but we saved a few quid <laughs> there. For sure. And then, so what? And you sold that now, right? Yeah, sold that one now. So, so what was it renting out for then? It was renting out for six hundred pounds originally, and okay. I sold it. Yeah, at the point I sold it, I probably should have increased the rent, but the rent should have been seven hundred quid when I sold it. I've, I've you... still kept one that's very similar, and that rent is seven hundred quid. Okay, what did you sell it for? That we sold that one for one hundred and thirty-three. So not not too bad. Then, yeah. Capital appreciation. Yeah, it's not too bad. How long did I have that one? Probably about I don't know three four years or something like that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So how long ago did you buy your first property? That was, I know you're asking questions. Like, I, can't remember what, I can't remember what I had for dinner this morning, let alone like what I did last few years. Um, I think we're probably going back about four years, five years, something like that. Okay, so it's, you've been in property a fair amount of time then. Yeah, but I mean, that was just a simple vanilla buy yeah, to that. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't really, I bought two more after that, very similar. Um, one of which I've sold and one of which I still kept because we've got a long-term tenant in there. Um the main reason was is that not to expand that portfolio is the prices have gone up so much in that area and the rents haven't gone up in line with that yields have dropped so just mm. got to look for something different that's fair enough so then talk through your land deal yeah so what did you kind of buy for what was it um and what were your original plans for it before yeah you kind of sold it? so we bought it it was we were living in there to be honest with you it was our house and then we um I was coming to the point where I wanted to sell it and I was like, okay, I can either sell it at market value or I've got a load of garden space at the back. Let's see what we can do. So I went to the next door neighbor and asked him and sort of, you know, asked him what he thought about potentially doing a deal with a developer um, and then got him interested. He was keen for it. He's only, he'd only recently moved in and hadn't spent a lot of money on the property. So so he was, he was okay with the concept. Um, and then we... Basically, I approached a few different agents, like land agents, um, and I just got some. It's like when you, you know, when you have a problem with a build, right? And you go and speak to, te- you call ten builders, mm. three of them turn up. You get to, well, five turn up. You get quotes from three. You get a load of opinions, and you make up your mind. I did the same thing with the land agents. Just found out exactly what they'd do, grab all the information. Then I didn't really have confidence that they would be able to sell it for the right price because there's nothing stopping a land agent going to their mate that they normally use and just selling it to them and telling mm-hmm. us that was the best offer. So I didn't have the faith in them to deliver on that fully. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to pitch this myself. I knew that land is in short supply and that if you've got a piece of land of that kind of size, then uh, a developer is going to jump up and down and, and take it off you if they want it at that and point what size in time. Was it? So it was, each plot was half an acre. Okay. So we started with two plots and ended with three. Um, so it ended up being one and a half acres in total. Um, and, and basically I just called maybe about 30 different developers locally, made a big spreadsheet, um, I ended up having probably conversations in person with about 10 of those. Um, around about three or four came forward with an offer. Um, and we had two solid offers on the table, to be fair. One from McCarthy and Stone and the other one from through an agent. But I, I believe it was actually Churchill. So it was the two kind of top uh, retirement home developers. And yeah. Wow. And what made this plot of land so unique that they were so interested um location you know um when you're looking at retirement homes not everybody drives so it's got to be within a reasonable distance to walk to a bus stop or walk to a, a town center so mm-hmm. it, it ticked those boxes off and they also have a minimum size requirement because they have a lot of communal facilities they have mm-hmm. like lounges and all that kind of stuff to make that work they need to have a certain number of units and to have a certain number of units you've got to have a certain size of the land so yeah i just knew that 
you know you'd need a bigger site and that's what attracted them to it yeah. wow and what were so talk through the figures of that what, yeah. did, what did you kind of purchase it for what did it sell for and then explain yeah. the ransom strip because i <laughs> yeah because i have some questions about that but go and explain it unless yeah let's, so i mean the purchase price is almost irrelevant because we had it in the you know we've had had the house for a few years so we just we bought it for like um I don't know, I can't even remember, 400, 380, something like that. And where was it? Uh, in Solihull. Oh, in Solihull. Okay. Um, but then anyway, so we, we the house was probably worth, um, well, we ended up selling the two plots together for, um, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, it's about 1.375, I think it was, each okay. plot. Um, actually, to be honest with you, I probably shouldn't say this on a public podcast, but <laughs> it's coming out now, so hopefully my next door neighbour's <laughs> not listening. But we... Uh, <laughs> So we got the most, because I put the deal together, we got the most for our particular plot and then the neighbour on the other side got a little bit less and the neighbour on the other side got a, uh, even less, the third one, to come into the party. So if you guys are out there listening to this, I'm very sorry. but I, You did do all the work. I though, did so do it's all. Fair. <laughs> so did, it's fair enough. Yeah, well, they, there you go. So yeah, it was, I was quite proactive with it, to be fair. And that's so. quite a premium they paid for on top of what it's... Yeah, what you, and that doesn't that, include yeah. the ransom strip. So yeah. So, so with the ransom strip, when they bought these plots off you did they not realize oh hold on there's a bit of land missing from what we should be buying? um so kind of no so that it was it was two plots right next to each other both half an acre each and um they were quite happy to do 27 flats on there so the story actually is that on on the wednesday i was trying to finalize the deal with them and i knew that they had their board meeting on a friday to try and get their land deal through and signed off and i knew that they were under pressure because they had targets to hit because they're a public company um, they got to hit certain targets within a certain time frame so they were under time pressure and i got that from them um and the land buyer who actually i'm still in contact with i'm going to see him tomorrow actually he's now works for a different company but he was a really top guy and i got got on with him really well so but anyway um so we um back to the point where was i I've lost my train of thought now they're advantage of how did they not realize yeah okay so yeah so we in, they were happy with the 27 and they didn't really consider going bringing another party into the deal because they thought they'd rather have two parties and not complicate it and have three parties and then it gets a bit more difficult to negotiate on these kind of things so mm. so anyway so i i did the deal and i put a load of things in the heads of terms which i knew that they would check out so for example i put in an indexation uh, during the option period so during the period of the option agreement i said to them that i want the price that you pay to go up with the retail price index or the nationwide house index or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I knew they'd chuck that out because as a PLC you need, they don't want to create provisions against what the house prices might go up by. They want to know exactly what they're paying and not have any kind of uncertainty about what the profit is further down the line. Mm -hmm. So I knew that was their business model to secure a price and not pay any more than what they thought they were going to pay. Um, so I knew that they'd chuck that out. But in exchange, I also put in a ransom strip thinking that, okay, if I manage to barter the indexation out, I'll at least keep the ransom strip which is what I ended up doing. And the guy asked me, like, why do you want this ransom strip? Like, what is the purpose? I just said, just don't worry about it. I've been advised by somebody or another. You should always put a ransom strip on every single development site. So I just kind of, you know, blagged it a little bit and just said it was just a best practice kind of thing. So you put it in the terms. Yeah, in I'm the terms. Have a, and, they, and they didn't think, hold on, this is going to block our... No, because they were happy with the 27. Ah, okay. And then they later realised that they... Well, what actually happened is on, on the Friday we signed the deal. On the weekend, I then spoke to the neighbour on the other side and I said, look, I'm really sorry. I couldn't tell you what was going on any earlier. We've had this uh, discussion with the developer. They're keen on buying the site. In fact, they're going to buy the site if we get planning. Um, it may not be too late for you to get involved. Are you interested? His first reaction was obviously a little bit upset because, um, you know, we hadn't informed him throughout the process and... 
um, you know, it was his family home. He'd been there for a few years. And um, so he was a bit upset, but he literally called me back within an hour and said, look, let's let's talk. And uh, actually, to be honest, he trusted me so much that he just said, look, Shabazz, you go and negotiate on this site for me. I know you've done it for your existing site, so just go and do it. Because I told him to just go directly. Um, but anyway, so I ended up brokering the deal for him. And I I could have actually squeezed him down to getting a lot less, but I, this is where ethics come in. And yeah, I actually, yeah, I thought, you know what, I'll give him a fair share and I'll give him the most that I can possibly get for him. Um, so I, I made sure that he got the most that McCarthy could pay for it. Um, and then in exchange, obviously now they've got the third plot, which if you can imagine is next to, so we're in the middle and you've got a plot on each side, but you've now got a ransom strip between <laughs> our plot and this new neighbour who's now come on board. Um, nice. So in order from, and I called McCarthy on the Monday and I said to them, look, um, I know you've done a deal for 27 units, but do you want another 10, 12 units? Uh, and the guy, he just laughed down the phone because he knew exactly what I did and he knew that he'd signed the ransom strip. And he was like, yeah, fine, but how much are you going to charge me for the ransom strip? So, so then, so we got, we got about, I think nearly 200K for the ransom strip. For a little strip of land. 10 centimetres, yeah, so... Yeah, legit 10 yeah, centimetres 10 centimetres strip of land all the way down the side of the property yeah. that's the most expensive bit of 10 centimetres of anything it is ever. indeed <laughs> it is indeed and, and actually I made sure that the option agreement was on a separate piece of um, a separate agreement so the neighbour on the other side couldn't get involved with that because it would become messy <laughs> ah very smart yeah so is a ransom strip for anyone out there who is doing similar deals or is buying land or developments is yeah. a ransom strip something that genuinely is advised um i think if there's potential to uh get a few pieces of land together and expand a deal beyond what you're currently looking at you should always look at what you can buy um put in a ransom strip on the edge of your plot and just kind of chuck it in there you know you never know what's going to come up later i mean also i mean some people use ransom strips as a strategy you know what they do is they go on the edge of town and they know that eventually in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years or whatever, that eventually that town is going to expand. And at some point in time for a national house builder or some kind of developer to come along and develop on that land, they've got to buy that thin strip, which might be just literally blocking an access road or it might be just, you know, blocking the gap between two pieces of land. Wow. So you can buy these things for like almost next to nothing because at the moment they're not worth money. Yeah, of course. But at some point in time to a developer, they're going to be worth something. And how so, do you find these ransom strips? Are they on Rightmove? So the, it's, they... not, it's not a strategy that I've actually gone ahead and done. I'd probably say Rightmove is not the place to look. <laughs> I'd say if, if I was to go ahead and use that as a strategy, where I'd probably start, and I'm not experienced in this, but what I'd, I'd say is I'd start by looking on Google Maps, um, overlaying the land registry, getting, you know, if you've got access to land insights, that kind of software is brilliant. Um, looking at where one piece of land ends and where one finishes and try and buy the border and just have a look at how the town is expanding and look at the... Um, the uh, local plan and look at what areas are designated for um, for housing and what you know what the housing supply is looking at the, like at the minute are they undersupplied is it going to expand or is it going to stay how it is how much is it expanding in the last five years what's the probability it's going to expand again in another five years so I mean that's how I'd start the approach I've not actually gone and done no, that that's, that's really interesting I think that's a good tip for people yeah. as a strategy it's not something you're taught yeah it's not something that's out I, there I think with, with any development site though so that's kind of looking speculatively at things for you know for future if, mm. if a town expands but I think if you're looking at any development site that you're building and you've got you own the freehold of the land you should always look for an opportunity for a ransom strip because you just never know how that site yeah. could expand or if somebody else needs that at some point in time
That's true. Very interesting. Something I'll, I'll look into. But yeah. what, you're, what you're basically saying is use all the resources and information available yeah. to research it. Yeah. And then and kind of go from there. But yeah, understand ransom strips and then speak to a good solicitor. You know, one who understands um, commercial property and land deals, and, and they'll know exactly how to put that deal together. Mm, perfect. So that's a really interesting deal that you've done with land. But I'd love to know more about the building we're in because when I saw it from the outside I was I was thinking wow this looks really modern really nice um and when I saw the show home I thought you know compared to a lot of developers in new builds that like I see in London the quality of the finish is so much better the design is better mm. everything just you know I felt like wow like I wanted to show my girlfriend a video of this place and be like this is what we need to live in yeah um so like t- tell me about kind of how this came about the figures um if you're happy to share them yeah. and kind of yeah what you're doing with it yeah, now? Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, so when I, so the story with this site is when I first came to see it, I, I didn't really have any intention of buying it. I was kind of just, you know, perusing the market and seeing, you know, what high, higher yielding assets were out there. Um, and at that point in time, it was listed at 2.1 million um, as a site, you know, for a full complete freehold block um, of, of 14 flats. So I didn't go ahead and buy it. Obviously at that time, didn't have the funding, wasn't in the right position. Um, I'd actually say, by the way, this is my first development site. And a lot of people say that, oh my God, that's crazy. You've jumped in you know, right at the deep end. Mm. For me, it's just like I'm just doing my job, getting on with it. And I don't really see, see it as a, a large site. It's just me spending my time doing my thing, kind of, you know. Um, but anyway, so I've learned a lot on the job. I'm not that experienced. I've not built a house from scratch. I will at some point build a house from scratch. But one thing I do know, and this is kind of like more back to the mindset thing is, you'll always figure something out on the job. Just start and just get it done. You know what I mean? So long as your numbers stack up before you buy the site, the delivery of it, you'll figure that out later. You know, I haven't got a clue about how to convert a HMO to an all ensuite HMO with soil stacks and, you know, these smart meters and stuff. But if I ever did one of those deals, I know that I could go ahead and get it done. So I'd always say, don't be scared about taking on the biggest project that you can physically take on at any given point in time. Um, But anyway, so back to this one. So then I got a call back about 12 months later from when I actually viewed it. We'd just done this land deal with um, McCarthy and Stone that paid out. Um, and then, um, I mean, it was quite good timing to be honest with you because they called us and, and we were thinking, you know, what do we do with this with this cash that we've had in? Um, and he, the guy said, basically, he's dropped it by 300 grand to 1.8 million. Only 300 grand. Only yeah. 300 grand. <laughs> um, I think, you know, he, I think he paid, he paid a lot less for that. So I think he paid probably 1.5, I think he said oh, on the land registry. So he, he had it for two years. He'd made a bit of profit on it. So he made, he made 300 grand by sitting on it for a couple of years anyway. Fair so enough. For him, it was a no-brainer. He was based in London. He was far away. He'd only been to the site once or twice. And there was a flooding in the basement. And I think he just got fed up. The lift was out of commission. All kinds of things were going wrong with the building. Um, he saw the maintenance bill just cropping up and cropping up and yeah. you know so he yeah, and he tried to run it I think as a previous owner tried to run it as serviced accommodation and the Airbnb didn't exist at that time so they didn't really quite kick off very well um, so anyway so he had the like, grand vision of getting loads of income based on service accommodation but the timing wasn't correct um, and his costs started to creep up so anyway he was quite motivated to move on to something else that he'd had in the pipeline in London um, so he, he came back to the agent and said basically um, the price is 1.8 but you need to ex- find somebody to exchange within four weeks because otherwise it's going to auction in four weeks. So he'd already entered it into the auction. Um, um, so the agent called me immediately. Um, I'm not sure why he called me first because I wasn't really a developer or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but he called me first. Um, and this is one thing where if you get on with an agent, you just never know when you've planted a seed where it's going to come out. Yeah. And, 
and, and kind of come to fruition because it was a year later that after I couldn't even remember the agent or the site or anything I had to kind of scratch my head I was like oh who's this guy and <laughs> why is he calling me and I went back through my emails and I was like, oh, okay now I remember the site so anyway I said yeah let's come down and have a look at it and um, did a bit of an internal, internal inspection and one thing I said I've never been on any training courses or anything but for me it's just simple basic principles you know the same thing I've been doing from Sorry, same thing I've been doing since day one. So I've been, you know, you buy something, you maybe spend some money in the middle doing it up and then you sell it. It's very, very simple. So I applied the same concept to this. Got my big spreadsheet together with lots of different valuation co uh, columns, which I did on different bases. Um, and then came to the conclusion that I must be able to make something on this site. And what's the worst that can happen? I'll either just rent it out and keep the rental income or I will um, just sell it back on and sell all the units individually and at least make what I've got for it. So that was my, my baseline. I knew I couldn't, I knew I wouldn't be able to lose on the site. Mm, okay. Yep. So then, so you bought it for 1.8. Yeah. How much have you spent on the refurb, which is a very high quality? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the original plan was actually to sell it for, well, I was going to try and sell it to a developer to, because I thought like, I'm not a developer. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. I've now become a developer, but that's a different story. Um, but, um, but I thought I'll sell it to a developer and let them do all the hard work and I'll just flip it on very quickly. So I had an offer pretty quickly actually at 2.3 million. So I could have flipped it on and made a fair little profit very quickly. Uh, it's a little bit of profit. Yeah, yeah it's a bit of profit <laughs> with it within a few months. But um, I then started to research that particular developer and what got me thinking actually was how quickly they made the offer. And I was like, okay, if they've made the offer so quickly, clearly there's a strategy here that they're using that must be able to earn them more money than 2.3 million. They're gonna spend a load of money on it, do something to it uh, and sell it for more. So I went to their website and I looked at a site that they'd done a mile down the road and actually I realized, and, and they did what I have now done, but I've now done it to a different, sta a higher standard than actually them, than what they did. Um, but they'd split it all up. They'd done a little bit of a showroom, they'd dressed the apartments and they'd sold them all off individually. Um, some to end users, to, some to investors. So I was like, hang on a second. This doesn't look that complicated. I've refurbed a house. If I can refurb one apartment, why can't I refurb 18 apartments? Yeah. It's the same thing. So, so basically, I just took the decision that, you know what, rather than giving all that extra potential profit to uh, the de developer, I'll have a go at it myself. So that was a bit of a leap of faith, to be honest with you, because I would have had to, I had to spend an additional, well, I've had to spend in total 600,000 pounds to get where we're up to. So that was a risk. I walked away from half a million profit to spend Six hundred thousand pounds, <laughs> blind leap of faith, basically. Um, so anyway, in the end, now we've we're selling all of the whole site together. The GDV of the whole site, including the freehold, is about three point four. Um, so, so your profit on it is about a million. Yeah, roughly speaking, pre-tax. Um, yeah, roughly speaking, I've not run the accounts or anything yet, but uh, <laughs> I mean that's that's incredible. And how old are yeah. you? Thirty-two. I thought you were. I thought you were like twenty five. I thought you were like. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm an old man now. Thirty two. Bloody hell! <laughs> so look, Shabazz is thirty two. If he yeah. can do this at this age with no previous experience of, you know, having a, a development site this big, then realistically, anyone with the same attitude and perseverance as you could do it, right? With the right team, with the right backing. Could. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I mean, the team you will build, the backing you will build, investors you can find if you haven't got the cash. You can build a pot of cash. Just go and find development. Um, Go and find planning uplifts because you don't have to spend money on those things and you can get you can make a lot of money by just spending a lot of time and effort and some minimal costs of you know doing the drawings and the architects and all that kind of stuff i think for me that's a great strategy of building a pot as quickly as possible so talk me through how you would um briefly how would you go about this strategy of planning uplift so i mean uh, i'm working on a, a few bits at the minute so um 
basically, I think, you know, land will come from various different sources. Um, sending letters out to landowners is actually quite effective. Um, you can, I mean, we, we've sent letters out to landowners. They've come back to us and they said, okay, we might be interested. Come and have a meeting with us. Um, we've gone in to see these landowners um, and they've been like, oh, we've had this site for ages. We don't know what to do with it. Um, we want to sell it to a house builder, but we're not quite sure. And where I think where I've been had a benefit is that I've given them a bit more like, I guess, personal service. You know, I've just got on with them, had a chat with them, asked them how the kids are, you know, stroke the dog, that kind of stuff. You know, you just get on with people and, and that people feel comfortable with that. Sometimes if a, if a bloke turns up in a suit from a national house builder, it's not always as easy. I mean, some of the land buyers are better than others at building rapport, no doubt. Um, but, you know, as, as an individual, if you can, and as soon as you've got some track record, now that I'm showing people the development site that we've done, and said, look, this is the kind of thing that we're delivering on, it definitely gives you a bit of credibility. I'd say if you don't have the credibility to start with, either blag it, like I've always done, or just get find somebody to partner with who's got the experience if you're going for those bigger sites. But I'd probably say start with blagging it because you don't want to jump into partnership with people for no reason. So to, to blag it to start with. Um, but anyway, so, so you just go up to a landowner, see what you think the land is worth, you know, try and, I mean, there's loads of calculations you can do in terms of dwellings per hectare and then, number of square foot you can get on there. I mean, all that information is online. You can search that kind of stuff and, and get yourself a little appraisal sheet together. Um, and then just start cranking the numbers, you know. And then sooner, as soon as you crank the numbers on, the first one will be the most difficult. As soon as you get into the process of running these numbers on a regular basis, which we're now doing, it becomes a lot easier. And you can assess a site within like, you can assess a development site within five minutes, you know, by having wow. a quick look, you know, at some roughly at some comparables and roughly at the build costs in the area. and bang it into your spreadsheet. If it's well outside of the zone of what you think is, is possible, you'd leave it. If it's in the possibility of, okay, that's kind of what I think I could pay for it, then you go ahead and you pursue it with the landowner and see if it's worth kind of going ahead with. So, I mean, it's it, it's very different as well what you put on every different site because, you know, some sites you might think you'll get apartments, the density will be higher. So you've just got to use a bit of common sense, I think, when it comes to this planning stuff. And I think learning the basics of planning, which I still feel like I haven't got my head around completely, but learning the basics of planning I'd say is really important uh, and I, I would actually just go out and spend tell a planning consultant I want half a day of your time pay them for half a day of their time and tell them to teach you the basics of planning okay or spend a lot of time on Google and just research <laughs> and so essentially am I right in saying that this strategy is find land appraise it understand the planning to it yeah and if it works buy the land get planning permission fill out the paperwork do all the long-winded stuff wait yeah. x many months yeah and then get an offer and sell it yeah then i mean the ideal scenario is you type a call uh, a call option so an option agreement on the land because then you don't have to commit to the land until you've actually got planning permission so you can either do an option agreement or you can do um, a subject to planning deal you know exchange for a quid or whatever the landowner expects um and then as soon as you get the planning through you complete um, I mean, the other option is, this is what I'm looking at with one particular site, and I'll, I'll tell you the strategy on this one, actually, it's quite interesting. It's a, it's a site um, towards Shropshire, um, which has got, it hasn't got planning, but the planning, uh, the local plan has basically said that this area is designated for housing, so it's come within the area, so it's almost effectively, if you if you submitted planning to get housing on it, you should get it, because it's already been designated for planning. Um, so... We've approached the landowner. This deal's not done yet, so otherwise I'll tell you exactly where it is. <laughs> By the way, never tell anybody where your deals are because they'll come and steal them, especially not on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> top tip, top tip for everyone. Um, so anyway, so in, in Shropshire, uh, it's got a potential for 150 units, which actually the planners have already told us, um, that the local council have already told us that this is what they expect to get on the site. 
Um, there are some mine shafts and some old bits and bobs on the on the site that we need to consider. So not all of that will be buildable. We probably think about 70, 80% of that is going to be buildable. We'll do some more surveys uh, to figure that out. Um, but essentially the plan with that one, I mean, 150 units is massive. You know, I couldn't... That's huge. Yeah. I mean, although I said I couldn't build it straight off, you know, if, we, if we've got that kind of piece of land, I'm sure we could find the investors to go and build it. But actually trying to go from where I am now to jump up to doing something like that when I haven't even built a single house, it sounds pretty crazy, but I'll go and do it, no problem. But I think that the the lower risk strategy and I think the strategy we're going to try and uh, use is something that's going to require zero cash and it should allow me to build at least 40 to 50 of those houses and I'll tell you what we're going to do. So um, if the deal goes through, we're going to split the land into one third and two thirds approximately. I need to crank the numbers a little bit more. Um, we'll keep one third and we'll sell two thirds to a uh, national house builder. We'll take the profit from that two thirds and use the profit to fund our build cost on the one third. Uh, and effectively we've not forked out any cash. And actually what we're looking at doing is bringing the landowner in as a JV partner, which is tax efficient for them. Uh, and also it means that we don't have to spend any money on buying that piece of land. So we've not paid anything for the land and we've not paid anything for the build costs <laughs> and we're building 50 houses. That's the ideal outcome. If we can pull yeah. that off, fantastic. <laughs> Let's see what happens. I have to get you back on the podcast to talk through that. I yeah. mean, that, that sounds, yeah, like no money down, like what everyone talks about yeah. in, in a very smart way. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the other out oh. way of doing it is, you know, the simple way is buy the land, spend a few million pounds buying the land, spend millions and millions of pounds, you know, it'll be roughly, say, four to five million to buy that land, 15 million to build it, and 20, 25, 22 million, something like that in GDV. So, say, five million profit. That means you've got to find like 15 million pounds. I haven't got 15 million. My, Ted might have 15 million pounds. Yeah, I, I don't. I definitely don't. I'm going to no, ask no, him no, afterwards. I'm... But unless there's an investor listening to this who wants to give me 15 million pounds, fair enough. But I'd much prefer to just use a, a zero cash strategy and create win-wins all around. Yeah, yeah, you know, you've got a win-win for the house builders because they're getting you know at least two thirds of that site, which they wouldn't get anyway, 100 units. Of course, yeah. yeah and you create a win-win for the landowner because it's more tax efficient to do a JV. They can spread their income over a period of time. They can potentially get entrepreneurs relief at 10%, which I'm looking into at the minute. Um, so there's some benefits for them. And they'll actually get more out of it by doing a JV than just selling us the land because mm. we're technically de-risking that portion of buying the land. So we're passing yeah. some of that uplifting, not taking that risk onto the landowner. Um, so anyway, so they create a win-win with them. So overall, every, everybody's winning. Everyone's happy. And that's awesome. You're, you have no money down. You're getting people involved. Everyone's winning. I mean, that that is kind of what I guess we all aim to do in property. So, yeah. dude, that, that sounds awesome. Yeah. And like, speaking of finance, when it came to the, the property we're sitting in, yeah. how, um, and that's the um, flats, uh, block of flats, um, how did you finance this? Because obviously the deposit, yeah. I assume, was fairly large. Um, how, what was your kind so of situation? When I, when I bought this, right, I didn't know anything about property finance. I didn't know Jack Diddley, I won't swear, Jack Diddley about um, <laughs> about property development or like LTVs and like what development finance you can get access to. I just didn't have a clue. So the way I, I did things then would probably be different to how I do things now. So I didn't leverage at all. So basically I bought this, like, effectively I bought it for, for cash um, with the small bridge finance, which I use for some of the refurbs. Um, but effectively bought it for cash off the back of the McCarthy and Stone deal that we did. Um, and it's meant that we've worked on only one site. If I'd actually leveraged that, I could have made that cash work and done two or three sites. But if I'm honest, because I just started off, taking on two or three sites would have been probably a bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, I can so, imagine. Yeah, this one's crazy. So it's enough. all right having done just one site because it's meant I've been able to focus on one thing, build yeah. up on my uh, suppliers, my contractors, you know, all my processes. I've got um, operations manager who now works with me as well, Alex. 
So, you know, it's allowed us to go ahead and, and, and do all those things and get those things into place. It's actually taken probably longer than it should have if it was just me coming in, you know, already running. Yeah, of course. But I'm but starting from a standstill. So you, you learnt a lot, I assume, from oh, doing this, these many flats, right? A huge amount, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the next project, definitely I'll look at some leverage and I'll look at some more clever ways of doing things, like like bringing landowners in as a JV partner um, or bringing investors in as well. You know, there's a few different things I'm, I'm looking at. I am speaking to some investors. Um but, uh, but yes, I think I do things differently to how I did it for this one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, yeah. and when you're speaking to investors, how did you, because this is the question that yeah. I ask everyone who's new. Where's the company, money? Show me the where's money. Where's the money? And I think it's probably in more obvious places than you realise. Yeah. I know a friend called Josh, um, who went to masterclass with him. He just started going to like posher bars and yeah. like upgraded his gym membership to like a really posh gym. Yeah. And he met, I think he met some really big investors, literally just from changing his lifestyle really um so i've not really put myself out there yet to go and find investment because um i've been so busy delivering on stuff and i've got other projects on the go as well in terms of businesses so um so it's been it's been early days for me to go out there and actually i've done a fair bit of networking but i've not actually gone specifically to target people to get investment i think if i was to do um to go and search for investors the way that i would approach it i understand the whole concept of you know going to um more expensive gyms, more expensive whatever is flying clubs and all this kind of stuff. I get it. You're gonna mix. You're gonna rub shoulders with people who've got money, mm. no doubt. Um, but then I think that the way that I would probably approach it is one to one rather than one to many. So I'd probably look at targeting people who I know have got some money and try and get a one to one meeting with them. Just have a coffee with them yeah, directly. Yeah, yeah. Just message them on LinkedIn. It's surprising how many people respond to you when yep. you message on LinkedIn or Facebook yeah. and just show a bit of interest in what they're doing. Absolutely. You know, don't start pitching at them like from day one. Don't say, oh, I've got these amazing development deals. Like you've got to see this. This is the, I'm the best thing since it's wrestling. Like work. it just yeah. doesn't work. You've got to build a relationship. Just say, look, I'm really interested in what you're doing. I'd love to find out more. And I'll come and do an appre- apprenticeship at you. You know what I mean? <laughs> just anything, you know, you just got to get it's in true. front of the right people. And then yeah, yeah. one thing leads to another, you know, you speak to what I'm already speaking to a couple of people who I didn't even expect would think about investing, but that then leads on to conversations with their mates. Yes, it does. It's all about relationships. What you're yeah. saying is literally relationships. You can never go in. I've got a deal. Give me a hundred grand. 10% yeah. ROI. It's just like, no. Yeah. And people. I, think, I think for me, I'm looking at, and it depends on your business model. If you're kind of buying single units like buy-to-lets or HMOs, whatever it is, I think you're probably going to need more. Um, you're going to need smaller, maybe smaller investors and you'll probably go to more people. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah, assume. Fair um, but I think for development sites and for bigger deals, um, which I'm looking at financing the bigger deals, um, I think realistically, I'd only really want to work with a handful of people, maybe four, four or five people who know what I'm doing, know what I'm about, um, just understand it. You know, I don't have to kind of pitch it to them. It just is it's, what it it's is. It's a strong relationship. That keeps, you, you build that relationship stronger. and I want to keep going back to that same pool of people. So, And I think that keeps you sane because you've not got to keep a million people happy. And, yeah. and, um, <laughs> and, and crowdfunding is a very interesting idea as well yes. because... I think, um, I mean, it's, you've got to report back to your creditors. And I think if I was to do it, I'd do it the proper way because a lot of, from what I've seen and what I've heard the feedback I've had is people put their development sites on crowdfunding without any track record or experience. And then they don't deliver on the site. They don't update their stakeholders, their investors. 
and people just end up selling their loan notes or selling their um, you would yeah yeah it's just and I think that that's not a credible way to do business I think people assume because it's crowdfunding it's invisible you can't see the person but there's still somebody who's put their money into you <laughs> yeah end of the day right it's not it's not like it's a nobody and they've just put money on a website it is still somebody put their they put their savings there's lots of somebody's doing something there's lots of somebody's money, doing yeah. something so you've yeah. got to keep them happy so I think if I was to go down that model I would want to know that I'm looking after that those people's money and um, by the way I hate the term other people's money I think this is a bit of neuro-linguistic programming if you're into that kind of stuff I think by using the term other people's money it automatically makes me feel anyway when I think about that term that oh because it's other people's money it's not my money so I can take higher risk with it yep. or I'm not so fussed if things go wrong yeah, or yeah. Um, I don't know it's not a return on my uh, energy or time or money it's a return on somebody else's money so I'm a bit less concerned about what happens with that I think really what we should be looking at is if, if somebody was to invest with me, I would want to spend double the amount of time and double de-risk the money they'd put in me than what I'd de-risk it for myself. That's what you should be doing, yeah. Yeah, you should look after that person's money twice as much as you should look after your own money. Because right? I would never want to take someone's money and be like, I messed up. And, you know, by the way, we're just selling this site and sorry, you know, we're disappearing off the face of the earth. Because that's not a way to scale a business. That's not a way to do... It is. No, ethical I agree. Business. Plenty of people do it, unfortunately. But yeah. and so, what what are your thoughts? And this is a really broad question, but keep mm. it as concise as you want and focus where you like. What are your thoughts on the market in your area? By area, I mean Birmingham. Yeah. So, um, I'm not the kind of person who does a lot of research on like the macro. I do a lot of research on the micro if that makes sense. So I, I focus on like local comparables on a site that I'm particularly looking at any given point in time. I don't tend to go and look at, oh, you know, you know, uh, what's happening with the UK economy and Brexit. I don't pay attention to the news, you know, like it might be a bad thing. I don't really know, but it, it is what it is. Brexit's Brexit. Great. All I see is change is opportunity. Um, so I don't really focus on that. I think Birmingham, for me, um, if you're going for single lets, the yields are just not strong enough to attract what the kind of return on investment I'm after. So that's why I'm now branching out to look at, um, you know, like Derby, Sheffield, Stoke, areas that are within, let's say an hour, um, that I wouldn't be managing the project on, um, but I can still access them if I need to, if things went really badly, um, where we can get potentially higher yields and there's scope for, you know, a bit of growth. Um, but I'd be leveraging people in those areas to learn about their, you know, local knowledge. If somebody's lived in an area for 15 years and they've done property for 10, and like, you know, I'm going in from day one, of course they're gonna know more than I am. Um, so I'm gonna leverage that and hopefully invest with people who, who know those areas really well. And that's more for the passive investment strategy. I think, I mean, this is where I'm sidetracking a little bit here, but I think people, from the people I've spoken to in property, I've spoken to a fair few people, a lot of people think that property investment is like a, a business and like it's a, a get rich strategy, but it's I don't think it's that really. I think it's an investment and it's like buying shares or stocks, you know? You expect a certain return after a certain number of years and it's a long-term game. I think if you want to build that as quickly as possible, you've got to have something that's income generating and that can be property development. Um, but if you've got a high paying job or if you've got, um, if you're a contractor or if you can have some side hustle, you know, some business on the side or something that can feed that, I think that's the best way to do it. And that's what I'm focusing on, two kind of distinct strategies. One is property investment, which to be honest, I don't really want to go down the, if I can, I'm not saying I wouldn't, but I don't really want to go down the route of HMOs, SA, because I think it's a lot of hands-on management. I'd rather get slightly less return in single lets that I can kind of almost forget about yeah. um, and then focus my time and attention on the trading businesses, which make more money, 
uh, that feed into uh, and higher returns which feed into those property investments are two different strategies there I think sometimes people have a hazy line between the two hmm, very interesting so Shabazz these are the last questions it's a three by three quickfire round so tell me what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made on your property journey oh, okay so um, I think so three biggest mistakes I'd say this is really quick ones off the top of my head um, I'd say get your budgeting correct and make sure you track your actual spend against your budget as quickly as possible. Get full financial control. That's number one. Okay. Second one I'd say is have an organized system. I think from day one we had we started with like to-do lists and then we moved on to different task management. You know, Get yourself something like Asana, especially if you've got a team around you and get them to use that and have a Gantt chart software if you can, if you're doing bigger sites and you're self-project managing. Um, third one is... Probably, and this is like business overall as well as property, is just learn to delegate a little bit and kind of always accept the 80 for 20 rule. You know, give it to somebody else, expect 80% of the results for 20% of the effort. Don't try and do everything yourself because you've yeah. only got 24 hours in the day. It's probably the three biggest mistakes kind of uh, I've made along the way. Okay, and so for leading on for that, top three tips for new property investors? Um, top tips, one is just get on with it. Just start, don't overthink it. Stop listening to podcasts and just go and do it. Um, but listen, listen to mine though. But listen to Tedges. Um, <laughs> Second tip is uh, be all over your numbers, like learn Excel, just learn how to use Excel at the back of your hand, be properly over your numbers, because that's where the deal can be either made or, made or, or broken. You know, everything else can be fixed afterwards, but if you bought the site at the wrong price, forget it. Um, third tip I'd say is, people talk about this all the time, but you know, your power team, inverted commas, um, get people around you who know what they're doing, because if you haven't got a clue, you can ask other people, and that's, that's massively important. Perfect. And then lastly, what are your top three goals for the future? So I'll break it down into short term, medium term, long term. So short term, I think I want to do a few more development sites, um, start to build that investment portfolio, but probably not focus on that too much because I'm building a bit of a pot to try and then eventually feed that investment portfolio. Um, medium term is actually something not property related. Um, I'm looking at building a digital marketing agency, not to sell services to people, but to go and buy businesses that I can then improve through digital marketing apply all the sales experience and that I've gained over the last however many years and hands-on selling and also managing a sales team, applying that to fixing people's sales team. What I find with businesses is they're great at operating businesses and doing what they do, but they're not very good at selling and telling people what they do and social media marketing and all that kind of stuff. And some businesses are absolutely ripe for social media marketing and they haven't even got a clue that they could be making money off it. Yep. So my idea is with the me in the medium term is to go and buy businesses, improve them, get their sales up, up to where they should be, and then look for an exit within one to three years. Um, so that's kind of medium term, longer term, and also there'll be more property investment going on with that. Um, longer term, I'm looking at, this is long term goals, five to 10 years kind of onwards. Um, I'd love to open a, a VC firm, venture capital firm, and nice. basically take what I did from the medium term bit, kind of make that a bit bigger scale. Um, and then mm. hopefully that can feed some of my long term philanthropic goals, which I've got, um, yeah, longer term. Awesome. Well, amazing tips from Shabazz, everyone. Hope they've been really helpful. Um, it's been really good talking to you. I've learned yeah, a lot. Me too. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Nice one. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.